This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Thousands of Kaiser health workers in California and elsewhere on strike. We go in-depth into whether those in the healthcare field should have the legal right to walk off the job. And welcome back, Charles. Thank uh, you. So what do the conservative Republicans in the House want exactly? They kicked out Kevin McCarthy. We're going to go in-depth into what's possibly next for them. And more kids are now getting a disease associated with alcoholics. Yes, but they're not drinking, the kids, which is good. Right. Yeah. It's not, but it's, it's bad not that, that they're... It's, it's better yeah. they have the right. disease, but at least they're not drinking, too. We start, though, with the Kaiser Healthcare Workers Strike. Jerry Cutler is a labor relations expert with Columbia University. He's also, by the way, the lead author of The Legal Guide to Human Resources. Jerry, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So here's here's the, the situation, right? You know, years ago, you'd go to your doctor, family doctor. Uh, it was a small concern normally. They worked for the, you know, they were their own business. Uh, no one went on strike because usually it was the family members who helped out the doctor. Now you've got these big conglomerates that own hospitals that increasingly buy up even private medical practices. It's big business, American medicine. It's important business to people who need health care, which raises the question, is it so important that perhaps it shouldn't be legal for health care workers to walk off the job? Well, I think we have to take a step back and look at the impact that strikes have on workers. Right? They're not receiving a paycheck. They can't pay their bills. They can't pay for food, rent, mortgages. They're also not eligible for unemployment benefits in most states. So the decision to go on strike is not one that's made lightly by workers. And it's typically because the employer has taken a position in bargaining that's so intolerable that workers feel they have no choice but to exercise the economic power that they have, which is withholding their services. So... it, you know, it certainly uh, can have an effect on, on patients. But if we're looking at the uh, the current strike at Kaiser, uh, it's not impacting the entire healthcare industry, right? It's confined to the hospitals and medical offices that are part of Kaiser. Yes, but if you're in, but if you're in Kaiser, it's you know, it's it's like an HMO, right? So you're stuck dealing with the Kaiser universe. So if they're out, you know, we had sound bites on our air this morning with people who can't get. Uh, chemotherapy, you can't get very important medical tests done. Uh, granted, it's a three-day strike only, but three days can be an eternity if somebody is seriously ill. So it does seem as if that there needs to be some sort of balance here. Well, you know, Congress has attempted to strike that balance uh, when it enacted the National Labor Relations Act, which gives private sector workers the right to strike even those private sector workers in industries that have a significant impact on on members of the public. Uh, I would like to think, uh, and and we know this, I I think, from the reporting, that at the Kaiser hospitals and medical offices that are affected, it's not all services they provide. Doctors are not on strike at Kaiser. ER nurses are not on strike. So patients can still avail themselves of emergent care and other critical care needs at those Kaiser facilities, 
And there are also Kaiser facilities outside those uh, jurisdictions that are not impacted by the strike. Uh, very quickly before we run out, uh, those who argue that maybe healthcare workers, uh, or at least some of them, should not have the legal right to uh, go on strike uh, and, and manage to get kind of a law passed about that, that wouldn't really work unless the government can make an argument that it's got to nationalize health care because health care is uh, private for profit business in the United States. Well, that's true. And, and that's one area where it's different from groups of workers like air traffic controllers who don't have the right to strike under the law because they're federal government employees. But But I would submit to you that even if this group of employees was carved out from having the legal right to strike, it doesn't mean there won't be strikes. In the U.S., if you go back 100 years or more, before workers had the legal right to strike, there were many strikes in critical industries affecting people, affecting safety and well-being, uh, in manufacturing and transportation. So removing the right to strike doesn't mean that workers will not withhold their services. Again, if they're being treated in a way that they believe is unfair or unreasonable. I would suggest a better approach than looking at the remedies that workers can avail themselves of is look at the causes. Why do workers feel they're in a situation where they're willing to go without pay for a period of time? I I would suggest to you that, that in my review of strikes over the years, that only happens when the situation is so critical from the perspective of employees that they feel they have no choice right. to go on strike. All right. Jerry Cutler, thank you. Labor relations expert with Columbia University. Right now, though, House Republicans have to come together to pick a new speaker after Kevin McCarthy was voted out yesterday. He was the second consecutive speaker from California, taking over for Nancy Pelosi, of course. David McEwen is a political analyst and political science professor at Sonoma State University. David, thanks for being with us. Well, it's a pleasure to join you both. Thank you very much for having me. So let me ask you, uh, I know all those years back when Tip O'Neill, for example, was Speaker of the House, there were a lot of benefits for the state of Massachusetts, or at least they think there were, because he happened to be not only a representative, but Speaker of the House. I suspect that there were benefits to the state of California when the Speaker of the House was first Pelosi and then McCarthy. Uh, If that's an accurate assessment, what happens to the state when the next Speaker presumably will not be from California? Yeah, it it seems uh, a big leap of faith that we would see the next Speaker of the House to be from California. And then you have to kind of look at to the point of your question, well, what is, what's the impact of California? Earmarks have changed. The earmark process has changed. Uh, we have had some return of those. And, and there is this idea that members of Congress do bring the pork back to their home districts. But California's importance still is there. It's just behind the leadership, right? Nancy Pelosi is still around. Uh, Her leadership uh, folks, her kind of kitchen cabinet, if you will, uh, are still hugely important. So while we might not bring back as much cash, if you want to think of it that way, uh, there are still going to be elements of uh, important projects that will matter and that California will be front and center in those discussions. They may just not be as prominent uh, as they were or for a long period of time. But nonetheless, the next leader of the House in 2024 
and what that looks like. For example, if Democrats were to retake the House in 2024, the road to that is going to be through California. So the Golden State still matters in many, many different ways. So what did California get as far as, you know, benefits, uh, extra gotchas, uh, having Kevin McCarthy in that office while he was there or Nancy Pelosi? What did we get out of that? Yeah, if we look at the recent past, and, and and certainly your listeners will know this, if you travel on any highway, it's a combination of transportation spending that happens at the local, state, and federal level. Usually federal dollars drive that. Uh, water projects uh, certainly related to that. Uh, and, and all of the changes that have occurred relative to uh, kind of carbon uh, capture and what's going on with the air, uh, those are all uh, have federal dollars attached to them. There are some court cases that could change uh, some of this kind of mix of dollars. But but in the recent past, uh, it has been helpful for California around, say, quality of life resource issues, transportation, air and water, in terms of bringing some combination of dollars together with what's happening at the local and state level uh, in terms of funding those. A lot of that has been driven, though, by California's massive economy and the economic engine that's been going on. So if California were to get a cold and you had this change of leadership, it would matter in that kind of sickly condition that California could experience some kind of uh, uh, malaise or trouble in terms of bringing those dollars back. So it's not critical in terms of that leadership, but it is important, say a necessary but not sufficient condition, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah, you sort of touched on where I was about to go with this, which is to sort of reverse the equation uh, for the second. Um, You know, a lot of states, it's no secret, they hate California. So (laughs) they do. I mean, they they can't stand us. Uh, So let's presume, for the sake of argument, the next Speaker of the House is from a state that hates California, like, I don't know, Texas. Um, could that Speaker of the House, whoever he or she might end up being, thwart things that California would like to have simply as a vendetta against the state of California? Yeah, I mean, we've already seen that. That's a, that's a great point and, and rather astute because, look, we did have during the Trump administration a, a change in taxes uh, related to what's called SALT. Uh, kind of a limit on state and local taxes uh, and what you could write off uh, personally for your income. That change in the SALT, in the SALT, the state and local taxation limit, affected particularly blue states, democratic states, where there might be local and state taxes that might be higher than the norm. So that meant you couldn't write off as much on your personal income taxes or your personal uh, income, uh, and you had to pay more, if you will, in additional federal taxes, even with the tax cuts uh, that were passed. That affected New York, that affected California, that affected uh, Illinois, those blue states as a way to kind of assault and go back. So that is something to pay attention to, because uh, if if there is an economic hiccup or some change and you have some type of limitation that persists, that could affect people's spending power. In addition, you've also seen, as we all know, uh, an increase in gas taxes and what that looks like. So the pocketbook also will matter for next year, uh, despite uh, what we see going on here and kind of the chaos caucus uh, for Republicans uh, in the last 24 to 72 hours. All right, David McEwen, thank you so much, political analyst political science professor at Sonoma State University. You know, he took the words right out of my mouth, the Chaos Caucus. Yes, the Chaos the Caucus. Chaos Caucus. Because when we come back, we're going to talk about this so-called Chaos Caucus. And what exactly do they want? Back to Washington, D.C., the House without a speaker. Brian Darling is a Republican strategist and former Senate aide to Kentucky's Rand Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. 
So uh, our last guest called it the Chaos Caucus. Is that all they want, just chaos? Well, it seems like there is a lot of chaos in the Chaos Caucus. But, you know, ultimately, this was something that was pushed by Congressman Matt Gates from Florida. He only needed 11 Republicans, even less, to join him to depose the speaker. And it has caused chaos in the House. But ultimately, I think Republicans have a week to get their act together, figure out who they're going to roll in behind, nominate that potential speaker and get back on track. But even for somebody uh, like the uh, esteemed congressperson whose name you just mentioned, um, even if he wants chaos, for what purpose? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that he had a personal problem with the speaker. And ultimately, I mean, he did have enough support to depose the speaker. It's interesting when you look at the way this played out. One thing that I thought was fascinating was the fact that all Democrats voted to depose the speaker. And this is a tool that could be used by Republicans in the future if they want to, if they lose power. And then you have Hakeem Jeffries, who's the most likely Democratic speaker in the next Congress, if somehow Republicans lose the House. Uh, Republicans can do a motion to vacate over and over again and, and harass that leadership because of what they did in this under these circumstances. So I was surprised by that. But, you know, it didn't take many to depose this speaker. And Hopefully, the next speaker, whomever, whomever that turns out to be, will have just enough support so they can't be deposed in the same way. And they, they might also change the rules that allowed this to happen, too, because uh, this was the deal that uh, McCarthy made. He basically gave them all the weapons and all the bullets and said, you can use it whenever you want, just one of you. And, and, and now I guess you can't be surprised that they took him up on that. Yeah, I mean, this is something that uh, Kevin McCarthy reinstated. It's something that Nancy Pelosi had suspended and changed the rules so that she couldn't be deposed the same way. But um, I, I presume that whatever happens going forward, the whole idea of a motion to vacate being brought up by one member will probably be pushed aside. I mean, when you look at how hard it is to pass legislation, how hard it is to even get a speaking role just to get the floor to speak, Yet it's so easy to make a motion to depose a speaker. It doesn't really make much procedural sense to allow that to happen so easily. I mean, it really defies kind of common sense when you look at the rules as a whole and how easy it was for this to happen. Let me ask you something. I mean, uh, Newt Gingrich came into uh, to really being because of the Tea Party movement, right? Um, is is this chaos caucus a movement? Is it is it an actual movement? And if so, where is it moving? Well, I mean, I, I think that there is a lot of validity to what happened. I mean, you have you have the American people looking at Congress and you look at the polling numbers for both parties. The American people don't like Republicans. They don't like Democrats. They don't like either party. They don't like Congress. And it's because Congress is spending way too much money. Both parties have let down the American people. And so this whole idea of chaos, you have a handful of members saying, look, we need to stop spending so much. Maybe this chaos will lead to something good. Maybe it will lead to Congress actually doing something, you know, on border security, doing something about inflation, addressing issues that the American people care about and getting spending under control, which is the most so, important. I mean, Congress is looking at a two billion dollar debt this this year alone. So you're actually suggesting that this could be a revolutionary thing that Congress could actually be made to, I don't know, do something. Well, I mean, the next speaker is going to be looking over his shoulder and, and knowing that if he does cut deals, 
that don't that are too far away from what Republicans want, then that speaker will be look, looking for a job, too. And so, you know, you have this downward pressure now, all of a sudden you have Speaker McCarthy being made an example of because conservatives didn't like his debt limit deal and they didn't like the direction uh, negotiations were going on appropriations for next year. They want to see more more cuts to spending. And we're, we're going to see that as a result of this effort by Matt Gates. Brian Darling, thank you. Republican strategist, former Senate aide to Kentucky's Rand Paul. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Uh, more and more kids today are developing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Yeah, researchers in the journal Clinical Liver Disease find it's about as common now as asthma impacting 5 to 10% of kids in the country. Dr. Jeffrey Schwimmer is with UC San Diego. He's also the founder and director of the Fatty Liver Clinic at Rady Children's Hospital that's also in San Diego. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Good afternoon. So do these kids, uh, are they getting fatty? First of all, I guess we should define for uh, those who are listening, what exactly is Fatty, fatty liver disease. And then the question that comes right after that is, uh, is that because of diet primarily? So fatty liver disease is when the cells of the liver are inappropriately storing large droplets of fat inside those cells. And some children will have fatty liver where those fat cells are, are present in the liver cells, those fat droplets. And some children do not tolerate this very well, will have liver cell damage and inflammation and a condition called steatohepatitis. And those children are the ones who are most at risk for serious health consequences. Uh, In terms of of what causes this? No, uh, that's quite all right. In terms of what causes this, that's that's a complex question. So diet, as you suggest, nutrition is, is certainly an important cause Genetics play a major role in this. Uh, Obesity is uh, a very strong risk factor for fatty liver disease. And in California, about 15% of children have obesity, which means that in the Los Angeles metropolitan area, that's over 1 million children. And what are some signs that parents should watch out for uh, uh, they should take to go see their uh, kids, get to the doctor and, and get checked out for this? So some children will have symptoms. Uh, They tend to be nonspecific. Some will have fatigue or abdominal pain. So certainly not every child with those things has this condition. Because it often can be silent and is so common and serious, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all children who are 10 and older with obesity should be screened for fatty liver disease, diabetes, and hypertension by seeing their primary care doctor having their blood pressure measured, and having a blood test done. Is this a, an American problem, or is it universal? This has become a global problem. The, the rates of NAFL, non-alcoholic failure disease, do vary around the globe, but almost everywhere in the world has seen a large increase in the number of children with this problem. Now, so that goes back then to the question, is it because uh, in the past, I don't know, half a century or so, we all around the world consume so much processed food that it contributes greatly to this, or is something else happening, uh, maybe at a genetic level, that is causing this? Ultra-processed foods, one of the things that you mentioned, 
is definitely an important contributor to this problem. And the amount of ultra processed foods that we all consume has increased dramatically over the last 30 years. And that is also the time frame in which we have seen a large increase in this, in this disease. Uh, beyond ultra processed foods alone, there are a number of other factors uh, in, in our food supply, but certainly the fact that we are eating too much sugar, not enough fiber, not enough real food, uh, all, all are relevant contrib contributors. Are you seeing an economic indicator in this? Is it people who maybe don't have a lot of financial resources, uh, their children are, are suffering from fatty liver disease more often than uh, kids who come from well-to-do families? So we started the first fatty liver clinic for children in the United States uh, 21 years ago. And over that time, we've seen people across the entire socioeconomic spectrum so it's not that anybody is completely protected from the, this condition, but uh, as you as your question suggests, yes, children who come from more disadvantaged neighborhoods with all of the complexities around that do carry a higher risk for having fatty liver disease. Treatments? Uh, treatment is is complicated. I think before we talk about treatment, I want to just pivot back to how important it is to make the right diagnosis. So after screening is done, we actually evaluated 8 million patient years across all of Southern California and learned that most children, even after have a positive screening test, don't get a proper diagnostic evaluation done. So it is important that parents really have careful conversations with their child's doctors. In terms of treatment, this is the intersection of everything in the body that has to do with metabolism and inflammation. And so proper nutrition is critical. Exercise on a regular basis is important. Sleep quality and hygiene matters. Stress management matters. All of those things play a role with respect to medications. Uh, there are certain medications that do get used off-label, meaning they're not approved by the FDA for this indication. Those are things that only should be done in concert with an experienced physician. And then increasingly, clinical trials are becoming an option for patients with this disease. All right. Dr. Jeffrey Schwimmer with UC San Diego talking about kids uh, developing fatty liver disease. Yeah, there were all kinds. We were talking about this before. All kinds of trends and hashtags out on TikTok. Uh, we just saw one. Hashtag beige flag. <laughs> I don't know who comes up with this stuff. Uh, what is it? It's apparently uh, very popular, by the way. Beige flag. It has to do with uh, relationships and how, you know, when some people, they just don't care right. for something that their yeah. partner is doing. Maybe some quirk. Uh, but it, the quirk doesn't rise to the level of a red flag, right. which would mean it's time to dump the partner and move on. Right. I think somehow my wife would be involved in that because she yeah. puts up with my quirks. And as far as I know, she hasn't raised it to the level of red flag yet. So we're, maybe we're at beige flag. I don't know. Uh, at what point do these trends, though, become harmful? That's the question. Dr. Kelsey Latimer is a clinical psychologist, founder of KML Psychological Services. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me here. So give us an example, because we're talking about uh, when trends become harmful. I oh, definitely want to talk about that. 
But are there TikTok trends that are not harmful that are, in fact, beneficial? I think that's an awesome question. And, you know, I think that there's absolutely a positive side to social media. There's no doubt about it. First of all, it's how I got on here today. So I'm really happy about that. Um, and I think it just connects us. So, right. So it gives us an opportunity to be far more connected um, outside of, of people or places that we would normally be able to see before there was the internet. So it's had an awesome opportunity for connection and an impact. My clients tell me that they they've had excellent experiences on social media. Um, oftentimes, they've been able to find recovery uh, when they haven't been before. And for those of you that don't know, I'm an addiction and eating disorder specialist. Right. So, work with people that are are seeking recovery, and they may not be able to find it in their lo their local area, but they might be able to find it online. So, I think it has pros and it has cons, right. and it really comes down to you know. How are we using social media? Right, but, but here's the thing, I, because what I want to do is I want to, for the sake of this discussion, uh, section off TikTok from the rest of social media, uh, because because <laughs> they're not all the same. Uh, Facebook is, does what it does and Twitter now X does what it does. TikTok has a very special role, it seems, especially for a lot mm -hmm. of kids. Uh, they see often a lot of dumb things that uh, are on TikTok because it makes good video. By, by nature, TikTok is something that demands a person's attention because they're short videos. People do things that are outrageous so that it gets the attention on TikTok. So it's somewhat different than yes. sending out a tweet or sending out a, a like on, on Facebook. So the, the question really is not as broad as all social media, which I grant you uh, has many good things, but is there something particularly pernicious, dangerous about mm -hmm. TikTok? I think there absolutely can be. I'm right on board with you in looking at some of the the top um, challenges, if you will, uh, that are out there. And they're incredibly dangerous. And people are trying things that they wouldn't necessarily try if they didn't see that, you know, on TikTok. So I absolutely think that you know, it's 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 buyer beware. You have to be aware of what you're looking at. And I think parents also need to be aware because our generation, you know, for I'm a, I'm a Gen X, um, we may not know about what's happening out there. And I think we need to be aware of what our kids are exposed to. And funny side note, I was talking to somebody this morning and this had literally nothing to do with this conversation. It was before um, we decided to meet up here today. And they were telling me that one of their clients talked to them about TikTok specifically being the new Google of their generation. If they are want to yeah, buy a blanket, yeah. they go they go to TikTok. They go to these different places. So we need to be aware that that may be the main kind of mode of information that's getting out to um, to some people, not all people, but some young people. All right, uh, final question uh, because we are running out of time, and and that that brings me to my point. TikTok is is built around very quick videos, right? And so with all these trends and everything, uh, especially younger people are 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 maybe finding out things about the world through TikTok, but they're not going very deep because there's no time to go deep. It's very Absolutely. quick. So is that a danger to young minds? And can you give us a short attention span answer? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh, I'm already bored. Sorry. Yep, there you go. <laughs> I think for sure, yes, there there is absolutely a challenge with that. We need to be able to go deeper. So, you know, I think that is definitely a problem with today's day and age. I see it all the time in my teaching and in my counseling, and I'll leave it at that.
Okay, Dr. Kelsey Latimer, clinical psychologist, founder of KML Psychological Services. So did this convince you, Charles, to get on TikTok? Oh, no, I've already moved on. <laughs> you forgot what we were talking about. Yeah. I don't know what we're doing. Uh, that's it for KDX In-Depth today. Thank you so much for joining us. Once again, welcome back, Charles. Hope you enjoyed your vacation. Yes, I did. Your Thank secret you. mission to wherever you had to go. Yes. Uh, it was trotting around the globe. The planet Venus is actually where we went, a space trip. Uh, so we'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.